well-known saying is that to err is human, and we are all wrong at times. If you teach kids, you find out that to err is very, very human, and that people are wrong almost daily throughout the day. And this is occurring regularly in our house, especially around math time. Uh, not but a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had some difficulty with math, and Isaac was doing this sort of it's okay, brother. It'll work out. Isaac was doing this thing where there was a picture of a scale and there was things balanced on us, kind of pre-algebra stuff. And, and he was trying to figure out what the book was asking. It wasn't even really about the math, just what is this book asking me to do and I don't understand. And, and I was trying to explain it to him. This is what it's asking you to do. And he said, no, it's not what it's asking me to do. Yeah, yeah, that's what it's asking you to do. And it got to the point where I had to give him the speech. And the speech is my math speech, which I've given to a number of different people throughout the, the, uh, the span of my life, most often to my children, that when it comes to math, I'm pretty good at it, and you ought to listen to me. I, I've taught math before. I've learned a lot of math before. I, I've, I've done this longer than you have been alive. So you should listen to me. You should know what I'm talking about, and you should just, frankly, humble yourself. Humble yourself and listen to me. And I looked at him. I gave him the speech. I looked at him and I said, now, son, do you have a response? He slowly looked down at his math. He said, dad, you're wrong. (laughs) I could feel the heat rising. I could feel my frustration and my anger. Not nearly as much as about 10 seconds from them than when I realized looking down at his math that he was right, that I was wrong. And so I very gingerly said, yeah, you're right. And then I left. Anyway, I had I had I had a lot of work had a lot of work to do. So we are wrong all the time. It's it's constant in our lives. We we often say to err is human, which is obviously not true for one specific individual who was very much a human, but for the rest of us, this is the way that we live our lives. Being wrong about math, being wrong about certain things is not a big deal. It might be if you're running a nuclear reactor or you're trying to launch a rocket to Mars, but if you're just at home trying to balance scales in algebra, then it's probably okay. Certain things are much more important to be wrong and right about. And how we might respond to Jesus' miracles is incredibly important. John, as we have talked about the past several weeks, as we've looked at this last miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, has given us these miracles, he's given us these signs, so that we might know that Jesus is the Christ. A wrong reaction, therefore, to these miracles might lead us away from that conclusion. And importantly, we get a lot of pictures of what that wrong response might look like here in John 11, 45 through 57. So let us read that passage together. John 11, beginning in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, 
But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is the word of our God. We are going to look at the numerous ways in which their response to this was wrong. But before we do so, it would be prudent, I think, to look at the good response that we have in verse 45. Not every response was wrong. As a matter of fact, John says that many believed in him. Many had a good response, while only some had this bad response. And it's important to note that the many who had this good response really had a tremendous response to him. It was not just that they believed, but that they weren't there to believe originally. Oftentimes when people came and saw a miracle of Jesus, they saw a miracle of Jesus because they were there to hear him in the first place, or they were there to bring their sick to him that he might heal them. But these folks weren't there for Jesus at all. These folks weren't there to see a miracle. These folks were there to comfort Martha and Mary in their time of trial and sorrow. They were here only to help them. It was happenstance more than anything else that led them there to see the miracle that Jesus performed. And more than that, depending on how you want to read the the statement in verse 37, the question in verse 37, it might even imply that these people were kind of doubting whether or not he even did other miracles. Notice what they say in verse 37. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? At At the very least, they're questioning the wisdom of Jesus in letting this man die. At worst, they're they're kind of questioning all of his other miracles. If he really healed a blind man, why is his friend, who he obviously cares about, the man's weeping, he obviously cares for him, why didn't he heal him? He healed a nobody. He healed somebody he had never met before, but this one whom he loved, he couldn't heal. Yet after that resurrection, they believed in him is a good and noble response. It is, after all, the response that John calls for. All the more important, then, that John doesn't focus on the good response. We might know nothing about what they believed or how fervently they believed it or how true their belief was, but John then turns his attention very quickly to the ones who didn't believe. And this is where we begin to be warned about how to do things wrongly or how not to do things wrongly. If you want to respond to the miracles of Jesus wrongly, First, be alarmed by the wrong things and appeal to the wrong authority. Be alarmed by the wrong things and appeal to the wrong authority. John doesn't actually tell us why they went to the Pharisees and reported what Jesus did. You could, if you wanted to, think the best of them and say, I bet you they were going there just to tell them all of the great things that Jesus did so that they would believe as well. But given that John is clearly contrasting this group with the ones who believed. In verse 46, you can't help but see the contrast. There he says, but many of them believed in him, but some of them. It's hard not to think that they had no 
idea of belief in their head. This also helps, by the way, to clarify what John means by belief. It can't possibly be that you believe in Jesus just because you agree to certain facts. Because absolutely no one in this passage, not the Pharisees, not the chief priests, the council that was drawn together, the people who believed, the people who didn't believe, are disagreeing on the facts. Did that man die? Absolutely. Did that man come out of the grave? Absolutely. They gather together and they say, he's doing a lot of signs. They're granting him signs that wasn't even talked about here. So there's no doubt that all of them believe that he does signs. All of them believe that he did wonders. But that's not what belief is. Belief is at least a trusting in him, a knowing who he is and what he has come to do. They clearly don't. What alarmed them was not the miracle. It wasn't the power of a man to stand in front of them, to give life and to take it, to decide life and death, to be able to resurrect somebody from the grave. What alarmed them was rather that so many people were believing in him. What alarmed them was that he was out of line with the leaders in time. It's important to know that we need to examine miracles in light of Scripture. Satan is said to be able to do many powerful things, but he does many powerful things to lead people away from Jesus and to lead people away from the God of the Bible, not to lead them toward them. Jesus was always giving reverence and honor and glory to God the Father. There is nothing in any of his miracles or in anything that Jesus ever said which would make you think that this man is leading people astray. They were alarmed simply because Jesus was doing things that pointed away from their own authority. And so they go to the wrong authorities. They go to them seeking to have guidance from them, seeking to accuse Jesus before them. I understand this is really ironic that somebody who is part gifted as a religious authority, who is paid to get up on Sunday mornings to tell you what is true and what is not true, saying that they go to the wrong authorities because they're going to man's authority. But that is indeed what's happening. You can come to me and you can ask me questions and you can seek my guidance and seek my approval and even accuse other people. All that's well and good. But my authority ends where their authority ends, and that is at the word of God. If the word of God is not central, if scripture is not what grounds all of our truth, if it is not the authority that we appeal to, then we have nothing. John 5.39 says this, You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. The good question, the best question, is always, what does scripture say about these things? The question you ought to ask of every sermon that I asked was, did the scripture actually say what he said it said? We run to so many of the wrong authorities to try to access the, the miracles of Christ, science, philosophy, history, even the church. We run to them and we ask them to make sense of it. We run to scientists and we ask them, could these things happen? We run to philosophers and ask them, is it possible that these things could happen? We run to historians and we ask them, did these things happen? We run to the church and we ask them, what does it mean that these things happened? Every single one of them suffer from the exact same delusion that you and I suffer from. We are all products of the fall. All of our thinking has been corrupted. All of the ways that we approach these things in our natural state are wrong. 
filled with sin. What we need to do is go to Scripture. Man's limitations are found in science, in philosophy, in history. Man's limitations in science is that science is only good for what they can see, but this is the whole point of miracles. Miracles are not everyday occurrences. They're not things that you can just sit around and wait to have happen. You can't point a telescope at it and hope to detect a miracle. Philosophy has the problem of being based on man's thoughts. These things are greater than anything that man can think. History has a problem of man's limitation in time. We live 80 years, 90 years, if God has been incredibly kind to us and then we die. Everything before then is not based on what we have seen and heard, but the testimony of other people translated down through the ages. And even the church, limited by man's morality, the church has oftentimes gotten these things wrong. And you ought not think then, it's just up for your own individual interpretation. You have to interpret along with what the Spirit has moved the church to do throughout the age. Because you can't rely on your own understanding any more than you can rely on my understanding. We listen to these sources. We'll be misled if we wouldn't. But we cannot trust them fully and finally with whether or not we ought to respond to Jesus' miracles the way that they call us to. Our authority only lies in Scripture. And Scripture tells us exactly what we are to do with this. Why am I right? Why, as I speak to you and I tell you that this miracle points to Jesus being the Christ, why is that the correct interpretation of whatever we do? Alec did this two weeks ago when he opened up the Bible and preached to you John eleven thirty eight through 44, and he said, this is to prove to you that Jesus is the Christ. I did it the week before that and the week before that. Why are those things correct? Because Scripture says those things are correct. Not because we are interpreting it and we're telling you that from what we can understand. Scripture says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The sum here respond the way they did because they were alarmed at Jesus' growing popularity and they thought we need to put a stop to it. In doing so, they appealed to the wrong authority. They, they tried to go to those who were in authority, but they were only man's authority. By the way, that's an incredibly odd thing. What they're actually concerned about is that if Jesus keeps doing this, Rome is going to come and crush them. What did Jesus just get done doing? Raising a man from the dead. Now, I have never quoted General George Patton in a sermon before, but one of his more famous lines is something along the line of, you don't win wars by dying for your country. You win wars by making the other person die for their country. That's very true. And an easy way to make that true is by bringing people back from the dead, right? If you have somebody who can simply say the name of a person and bring them back from the dead, that's a real easy way to win a war. But they don't apparently see that. They run away from it. They're illogical because it's a front to their own authority. Friends, if you want to respond rightly to Jesus' miracles, appeal to the right authority and be alarmed by the right things. Secondly, if you want to do this wrongly, adopt the wrong center and ask the wrong questions. If knowledge was going to be compared to a journey, the kind of questions that you ask will be the ticket that will put you on the right automobile or the right train and will get you there at the right time and will get you to the right place. 
wrong assumptions lead to wrong questions, and wrong questions lead to wrong destinations. Listen to the question that they ask in verse 47. What are we to do? Now, on its face, that doesn't seem much different than what we are asking ourselves. What are we to do with this Jesus? What are we to do with these miracles? I think that the ESV does us a disfavor here in, in bringing that question a little bit too soon. The full question should be the rest of that verse. What are we to do because this man performs many signs? The question is not neutral. The question isn't just sort of innocently asking, how might we respond to this, Pharisees and scribal leaders? How are we supposed to handle this? The question, even if it's literally that, is actually more like, what are we going to do to make him stop? How are we going to handle ourselves to make it stop? You see, they didn't care about his miracle. They didn't care about what it said about him. They simply assumed that they were right. They assumed that their way of viewing the world was always going to be the right way of viewing the world and that he needed to be stopped because he didn't fit into the way that they viewed the world. Like me with Isaac, they were the authorities. They were the right ones and there is no way that they could be wrong. They couldn't be wrong because they thought that they were central to everything. They thought that God spoke through them, that God speaks in them, that God speaks for them. The universe, the world, all of Judea revolved around them. But these miracles are meant to awaken them from the fact that they're right to the fact that they're wrong. These miracles aren't first and foremost about them, and they're not first and foremost about us. They're about God. If you adopt the wrong center, if you think that you are the center of everything and that you have this impossibly correct view of the world and you are unwilling to be challenged or changed by scripture, you will always ask the wrong kinds of questions from Jesus' miracle. You'll ask, first and foremost, what's in this for me? Crassly and maybe a little cynically, you might say, so what? I agree. I agree. Jesus raised a guy from the dead. What does that have to do with me? I don't know what I gain from this. It's not always a bad question. We need to read scripture thinking that God has left this as something for us. It's not just to tell us of God. Well, that benefits us not at all. It is to tell us something about God. It is for our benefit. But our benefit is wrapped up in who Jesus is and not what God is necessarily telling us about who we are. The miracles are not focused on you, first and foremost. To make my case, I point you to the miracle of Lazarus being raised from the grave and ask you, who does scripture say is the center of that? It's not even the man who got out of the grave. Lazarus isn't even the center of this. He wasn't the center of it before when he died. He wasn't the center of it while the miracle was going on and he's not the center of it now. People are not scrambling around saying, what are we going to do with this Lazarus, this zombie back from the dead? They're saying, what are we going to do with Jesus? The center of the miracle was always Jesus. And if it's not Lazarus who actually got raised from the dead, friend, it ain't you. You're not the center of this passage. Your salvation even in its entirety, is meant to point you not toward how much good you get, not toward how much glory you will receive, but to point you toward the glory of God. You were saved and your salvation exists 
because it manifests God's glory. That is precisely what this miracle was going to do. He says, you will see God's glory. Behold the glory of God. You might ask, how can I make sense of this in sort of a a non-miraculous sort of way? So many people want to do this. They're so wrapped up in science that they think that this, this miracle couldn't have actually happened and, and John couldn't have actually seen a dead man come back to life. So it must be telling us something else. This week I ran across a really wonderful description of something like this in a book by Tim Chester Cooks uh, of the Exodus. He relates the story of Pastor Donald Bridge who tells the story of a liberal preacher visiting an African-American church As the minister talked about the crossing of the Red Sea, someone shouted, Praise the Lord! Taking all them children through the deep waters, what a mighty miracle! The minister, who did not believe in miracles, was annoyed at the intervention. So, rather condescendingly, he told the congregation that the Israelites were probably in marshland with an ebbing tide, so they were simply wading through six inches of water. In response to this, the same voice as before shouted, Praise the Lord! Drawn on all them Egyptians in six inches of water. What a mighty miracle. No doubt that woman was highly uneducated, and no doubt that liberal preacher was incredibly well-educated. And that woman shows she has more understanding of how to interpret Scripture than he could ever have. Six inches of water, 180 foot of water. Praise the Lord. What a mighty miracle. If you assume that you are the center, if you assume that you have it right, if you assume that everything that must be said in Scripture must revolve around you and what you think and what you feel, you will handle the miracles of Christ wrongly. But if you assume that they all revolve around him, it will be a boon to you. Seek your own good out of the word and you will find very little in it for you. Seek the good of Jesus Christ. Find his glory and his grandeur there, and you will find yourself much refreshed and much good coming to you. Adopt the right center, knowing that the Bible is all about God, and you will begin and start to ask the right questions. Third, acknowledge the wrong enemy and accept the wrong victory. Acknowledge the wrong enemy and accept the wrong victory. You want to handle the miracles of our Lord Jesus Christ the wrong way? Make sure that you are convinced that you have enemies that you don't really have and you will get victories that don't really serve you. The real concern that these people had is clearly Rome. If we let him go on like this, so many people are going to buy into him and when people buy into him, these guys raise themselves up and soon Rome is going to have to come and put them down. And when Rome does that, we are going to get crushed. Our place is going to get crushed. Our nation is going to get crushed. And so We need to make sure that we don't anger the Romans. They're our enemies. They're coming after us. It is quite a thing to behold that people who have grounded themselves in Scripture so much as these men apparently have can miss the central point of the entirety of the Old Testament. And and I, I don't mean like you have to go to seminary to get this. I mean, have you read the Old Testament? The the whole point of the Old Testament is that the people of God have enemies coming upon them, and why? 
not because they were super faithful in doing everything that God commanded and he was just waiting for somebody to rise up to, to be able to beat back their enemies. Every single time they face enemies, they face them because of their own sin. They go into the land. They're going to take the land. They don't drive out all the people. They don't faithfully do what God has commanded. Each one turns to their own ways. They go after their own gods. They do the own thing that they want to do, ignoring the commands of God. The Philistines rise up. The Assyrians rise up. The Amorites rise up. Time and time again, God calls to them. He says, listen, be faithful to me. Come back to me. I will forgive you. I will defeat your enemies. Time and time again, what do the people do? They come back for a moment, then they fall away. The land is filled, filled with violence and bloodshed, with debauchery, with adultery and faithlessness to the covenant God everywhere you turn. They will turn to almost anything else for help. They will turn to the foreign countries. They will turn to horses and chariots. They will turn to foreign gods. But the one thing they refuse to turn to is God himself. It's not the fact that they had enemies. It's the fact that they were their own worst enemy. It was their sin that brought their downfall. It wasn't Babylon's might that brought them into Jerusalem. It wasn't Assyria's might that made them go like a hot knife through butter through Samaria. It was their sin. Their enemy is sin. It's not Rome. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. It's not Rome. Rome is nothing to God. No matter how mighty they might have been, Rome was nothing to him. He can take down Rome in a second. He doesn't need their faithfulness, although he does wait for it. Friend, I'm going to tell you, you have many enemies in the world, and they are real enemies. But there are none of them who are as powerful as your sin. Absolutely none. Your sin is the power that Satan has over you. Your sin is what he uses to accuse you before the Father. It is your sin that leads to your death, which is the great weapon of Satan. And friends, you are powerless against it. Paul makes it very clear. You don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So long as you see others as your enemies, you are not likely to view the world correctly. If it's only those who oppose you politically who are your enemies, you will only be concerned with political victories. If it's only those who have murderous intent against you who are your enemies, you're only going to be concerned with military victories. If it's only those who oppose you intellectually who are your enemies, you're only going to seek academic victories. But the greatness of your enemy does not lie in another party. It doesn't lie in another's sword. And it doesn't lie in another's mind. It lies in you, friend. Your greatest enemy is you. Your greatest enemy is your sin. That is what will cause you to lose the world and your soul in hell. It is your sin that leads you to be separated from God. God will make all things right. Wait upon his justice. Wait upon his goodness to show itself most fully at the second coming of Christ. But realize unrepentant sin is not good to have in your life. Realize that your sin can separate you from God. Repent and know him. As long as you get the enemy wrong, you're always going to get the solution wrong. Caiaphas utters something that is truly incredible. He utters something that is so right that all of us would be happy to stand up and confess with him. And he also, in the same words and in the same breath, utters something so breathtakingly wrong that we are right to think it's satanic. It is better 
for one man to die. He looks at them and he says, I, everything you guys are saying is true, but, but none of you have the backbone to stand up and say out loud what you're all thinking. What we need to do to keep Rome off our backs is put him to death. So let's just say it. Let's just do it. Put him to death. It's better that one man die, even the implication, I think, is even unjustly, because if it was just, you wouldn't have to make a speech like this. Even unjustly, it's better for him to die than for our whole nation to be wiped out. And John says, amen. That is indeed true. Caiaphas didn't mean it the way we might mean it. Jesus would indeed die, not just for the nation, but for all of the scattered people of God. He dies our death in our stead. His death is there to avert our own tragic death. Not our physical death, but our death forever in hell. He dies so that we don't have to. He lives so that we can live in him. This is indeed him dying for us so that we do not perish before our God. That is exactly the way Christians would read that. If I got up and I said that at a different place at a different time, you would say amen because that's exactly what's going through your head. But that's not what Caiaphas meant. Caiaphas only meant this politically because he thought that his greatest problem was Rome. Friend, as long as you think your greatest problem is something in this world, as long as you think that the enemies that you have are flesh and blood, their ideas and concepts, as long as you conceive of an enemy outside of your own sin, your victories will only be merely human in origin and achievement. Your eyes will never see beyond the physicalness of this world. Your enemy is too small. Your enemy is too far away. And any victories you get will be pathetic, petty, and weak. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Our Lord fought a battle for us and he won a victory over the greatest enemy that we have ourselves. He has defeated our sin. He has defeated the punishment for that sin. We are no longer bound by the grave. We are no longer bound by our sin. He has made us free from that and that, friend, is true victory. That is what we need. Don't get me wrong. There are enemies of the cross out there. There are enemies of the cross with real flesh and real blood. And certainly Jesus will deal with them. But don't ever mistake them for being your foremost enemy. Jesus has dealt with that. Your true victory lies not in you besting flesh and blood, but in Jesus overcoming your sin and death. The remainder of this chapter of John sort of outlines the natural consequences of the Jews' now official plot. First, Jesus is going to retract himself to be with his disciples. This is basically what ends up happening in chapters 13 through 17. Jesus then has a long time of preparing them not only for his death, but preparing them for the aftermath of his death. This is a rich section of scripture and it is a blessing to us. We kind of get that hint in verse 54. In verses 55 through 57, we have the Passover prophesied as Jesus is the true Passover lamb. This will be where he dies and is raised for us so that the spirit of the Lord might pass over us. We might not die as the firstborns are taken in Egypt, but we might live before God. The trial, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus is pictured here in the Passover as it will be 
in John 18 through 20. Realize, though, that the import of these upcoming chapters is really no different for us than the import of the previous 11. It's the same. It's the same thing that we are to get when we see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. It is meant to leave us praising Jesus as God, praising his power and his glory, who takes on our enemies, defeats them, gives us life instead of death, and shows himself powerful over all things. What then is the right way to handle the miracles of Christ? It is simply to praise him, to praise the one from whom all blessings flow. Let us pray. Father, may you be praised for sending your Son. Jesus, may you be praised, for you have obeyed your Father's desires. Spirit, may you be praised, for you have brought all of this to us. May the Godhead be exalted, lifted up, and adored this morning, for it is only from you that all blessings flow. May these blessings be upon us as we respond to your word in faith. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.